Well, it's a pleasure to, to be here, and I'm going to use the first part of, of my time to introduce membrane filtration to you, because I, I took the guess that that would be appropriate, so to those of you, I, I think you're in the minority who are familiar with membrane processes, um, then, well, in the way I apologise, but I think we're doing it for the majority. And afterwards, I'll then talk about critical flux and threshold flux. And I think that will uh, lead, in a way, into the next talk, although the, the concentration there is much more from industrial perspective and much more about energy usage. Um, but I think we got the order right. So probably I don't need to, to say why we're, we're, we're researching on membranes, because... The, the surface water supplies are, are strained and groundwater supplies are overused. And so the world really does have a problem as, we, as the population increases, as, 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 as people generally end up using more, if you look across, across the world. So we really do need to address this problem. And I think it means that it's going to be increasing... Uh, reliance upon desalination and water reuse. And if you're going to go for water reuse, then I think it's only membrane processes which can give you that guarantee of the water being uh, essentially free of bacteria and viruses. And if you, perhaps this isn't a, 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 great, uh, a great slide, it's just trying to say water stress regions or predicted water stress regions looking forward. If we looked in things in more detail, or if I just ask you to think about where the, the cities of the future are, often they're on the coast, and therefore um, desalination is certainly a way of increasing the water supply. So you know, a lot of, not everything in all the big cities in China are on the coast, but are, are, you know, perhaps half of them are. So, one of, I'm not going to, to talk about other challenges. You know, what we want clean water for agriculture, for industry, and for domestic consumers. And talking earlier today, we said that the water which you um, get out of a new water plant, which I'll take you through briefly, is almost too good for, for you and for me. Uh, why do I say that? It's because after the used water, in Singapore, it's called used water. Okay, over here you might say sewage, and in America, if you're trying to talk this scheme down, you say from toilet to tap, we're not having it. So this is the scheme by which you take used water. Then maybe it's an MBR, a membrane bioreactor. So it's a, a treatment process, a bit like that at wastewater treatment plants. Uh, you're using bugs to to get rid of um, the, the BOD, the biological oxygen demand, you're taking, you using that, the bugs to purify the water, but you're also using a membrane to do the filtering. So membranes, if you like, are filters. So as far as we're concerned today, just let's assume they're just filters. And if they're MF, they're filters with pore sizes, which are around 0.2 of a micron, 0.1, 0.2 of a micron. So bacteria are 5 micron, definitely 
bigger. Or the OK bacteria come in a range of sizes, but the you know, five is a pretty small one. Uh, viruses, too, are excluded by, by membranes. But after this step, it goes through th the same sort of membrane as you use for desalinating salt water. So perhaps the concept of pores there isn't the right one, but the concept of filtering out at a very fine level is certainly true. And then after that process, there's a third process in Singapore, and that's the water's exposed to ultraviolet light. So by the time it gets to here, um, it is certainly drinkable. Um, and they, they have the new water in bottles. It's spout like that. And the challenge is then to believe that the technology was sound and that it's not just poorly filtered river water. And, but it's filtered so well that it's rather tasteless. And so it's a good feed stream for um, the electronics industry. So water reuse isn't necessarily for domestic consumers, it's for industry as well. So I've given a bit of background. Um, now I'm wanting to look or open up the subject of water membranes and what contribution they might make towards a sustainable future. And I want to talk about what is a membrane, membrane modules, and then get on to critical threshold and sustainable fluxes. So I've said, what, I've got a, a reverse osmosis <coughs> membrane. No, I've got polyamide. So uh, I've got a reverse osmosis membrane. And they're often built in a hierarchical structure. So some base, which is very open. Some uh, support layer, which is fairly open. And the very thin top layer, which actually does, if you like, the, the filtering. Maybe some engineers might not like me to say filtering out of ions, but certainly a very thin barrier, which preferentially lets water through whilst excluding uh, the things you want to exclude. So if it's an RO membrane, you're seeking to exclude everything other than water. If it's, uh, say, let's just do one more. If it's an ultrafiltration membrane, you're excluding suspended particles, you're excluding macromolecules. I should also have added you're excluding cells and viruses but you're letting through salts and divalent ions if you're using this membrane. And you also, yeah, all, all sorts of salts. Now, membranes, um, well, I don't, say, I don't know when we're gonna say they came of age. Um, when I was introduced a, a moment ago, mention was made of the critical flux paper, and I think it's came of age this year because it, it was 1995 when it was pub first published. So that's 18 years of old age. What do we mean when membranes came of age? But they weren't really around at all until the early 60s. You know, chemists had manufactured something like those ultrafiltration membranes. Um, back in the 20s and 30s, you know, took ceramic jars, created 
some polymer barrier in the middle of these ceramic jars, and they could do some things of interest to, um, in physical chemistry with them. Um, I think some progress was made in, in Germany, I think even during the Second World War, in, in creating some filters um, which were then used in hospitals for, for, um, for doing tests, to, to screen, screening out, keeping the bacteria on the surface whilst letting others through. And that technology went to the, the States um, in uh, post-Second World War, and uh, a lot of the work on, uh, on membranes development was initially over in the United States. And the key pattern, the key thing came, advance was made in UCLA by people who weren't actually Americans, but they were working there. Uh, Sidney Loeb, who subsequently went back to Israel, and Suryanjan, who I'm not sure what happened to him. But what they managed to do was to cast, get this top layer made in such a way that it was asymmetric. So it had a very thin skin which did the separation, which gave you the preferential transport, and the rest of the layer gave you some structural integrity. That was the big breakthrough as far as membrane making was concerned. And then what else is spiral-wound modules? How do you package these things up? Because the amount you get per unit area, per unit time, is not so great. It's litres per metre squared per hour. So, you know, a few litres per square metre of membrane per hour. So, you need about a square metre of membrane for every person. That's how, given, depends how much a person consumes, but you can think of 100 litres per day. Um, you can think of what the uh, rate is per hour. Maybe a square metre is good for a family, but it's certainly not that much comes through per square metre per hour. So packaging up membranes is important. This was another way of making membrane, uh, RO membranes. That, that also was a big advance. Submerged membrane bioreactors, very important for wastewater treatment, um, maybe uh, younger than uh, you are in the audience. And it's not just used for water, but I won't talk about the other uses. So, how do you make a membrane, just briefly? You, you uh, reel to reel, you have some fabric, and you cast the membrane on that fabric. If you go back to what we had earlier, you, you had a bottom layer. Well, this is the bottom layer, and then it goes through a system which gives you the membrane. Then you make that membrane in a way, generally you make it so it's asymmetric, with a very thin layer on top, and I've already said that does the separating. This is a spiral wound way of packaging them. Um, I won't would I risk trying to describe this. This is a, um, a sandwich here, two membranes with a spacer in between and then another spacer here. The feed comes across this spacer. What goes into the membrane then is in between two membrane sheets and it spirals around 
until it reaches the centre, and it's joined to that centre rod in a way which enables it to exit. Quite a clever way, I think, of packaging up a membrane. Um, some membranes are hollow fibres, or capillaries. You have to think of something spaghetti-like, um, but hollow down the centre and porous through the walls. Um, this is another sort of membrane. These are uh, fibres, and it may have dirty water on the outside. Uh, this is certainly dirty water on the outside, uh, but in this case it's flat sheets of membranes. So um, you can see perhaps rows and rows of these membrane sheets in this wastewater plant. And it's a very, very small plant. But you might think it's going to take up you know, a room bigger than this you know, to treat not too much water. But when you compare it with the footprint of traditional plants, then it, it, they're actually quite small. Because you, um, so, but so when I say the productivity of a membrane unit is not that great, um, I guess it depends what you're comparing it with. In terms of the footprint of an overall wastewater treatment plant, they, the membrane plants are smaller than traditional plants, which often rely upon lagoons or, or large tanks. So I hope, hope that rushed introduction to membranes is of, of some benefit. Um, you certainly saw in the slide just gone that membranes foul. Um, now, I'm just thinking, foul smell? No, it wasn't quite what I was thinking of. Um, and I'm not sure that they really smell that bad. Um, what I'm thinking of, it's like the way people say heat exchangers foul. You get muck on the surface, which uh, uh, tends to adhere on that surface. It could be a biofilm, um, if it's, or it could be inorganic in nature. So when you push membranes, you get more fouling. Now, you can, in this system, there's, because it's a, an aerobic membrane bioreactor, there's bubbling is necessary, and so you've got to bubble air into your wastewater. You can make use of the bubbles to cause some turbulence in the flow stream. You actually have to use more bubbles to cause the turbulence than you actually need for the biology. Um, but you, so there is an energy input. In the system shown earlier, you would typically pump uh, fluid through the tubes or across the plates. So you try to keep the fouling moving, or the potential components which foul moving along. Now, when I first started working on membranes, which it's a bit under 25 years ago, this was taken as a given over here, that flux would go down with time. So I'm thinking of a system in which, let's call it filter, your membrane filters there, you've got a pressure difference across it of say five bar, five atmospheres. 
So thinking of something like ultrafiltration. And it might be, if it's a lab, it might be ultrafiltering a protein. It might be a polysaccharide, or it might be yeast cells. Um, in industry at the time, it might have been a dye solution. Um, it, you might have been, been the food industry might be concentrating up some fruit, uh, fruit juice. And you, or the dairy industry too, certainly used membranes at that time. Um, but this would, was what you would observe. You would accept it almost as given. And that's because you have to imagine this curve going out here. People felt they really needed to operate out here to squeeze the last bit of fluid out per unit area per unit time. Flux is amount going through per unit area per unit time. Squeeze that out. What went to a conference, I think, in well, early 90s. And one of the speakers said, it's interesting to, to observe what happens at one bar and below one bar. So instead of five bar, back off. Back off a long way, you might think. But if you back off, okay, you can, we found out, maintain the performance over time. Now, you might say this is not going to happen in industry if you run this, you know, day after day, and that's true. But if you like, it's the ideal which you can get um, consistently if you're not gr with... Okay, there's some, some caveats which I won't go into. But if you're, I was going to say, if you're not greedy to start with, you can maintain a steady performance or have a very gentle fall-off in performance. So, we started investigating this regime and came up with two forms of the critical flux. The strong form was that the performance was as good as you'd get with, with pure water. So, whatever was fouling, might be a protein solution, it was kept on the move by the pumping around such that you got the same flux through the membrane for the same driving force as you would with pure water. So if you're at point 0.3 of a bar, you would get this flux, say, at point 0.3. There were other solutions in which there was some quick fouling of the surface, and because there's quick fouling, you get less flux for a given driving force, but, but you were in a linear region, and it didn't then matter what happened thereafter, you still managed to maintain a steady performance, but not as good as water, but it was steady. You didn't get that fall off in time. So this was a, a bit of a game changer because it suggested, as they say, a new way of operating, but it suggested that you could double the membrane area, okay, put up the capital costs, but then you would not have this, such a big cleaning problem. Okay, you end up needing some cleaning, but less cleaning. Now, if I come to water, unlike the systems I've just been talking about, in which you would 
uh, fix the driving force, the pressure difference, and then accept the flux. In the water industry and in some other industries, you want, cons you want a certain throughput. You want to produce so much per wa water per day from your membrane system, which means that if it fouls, the pressure will go up with time. So instead of the flux going down with time, at constant pressure, this is where you fix the flux. It fouls, you get more resistance, you need to um, increase the pressure to maintain the performance. Uh, oops, sorry. Now, we just started looking at constant flux operation and asking the question, when does fouling set in? And with um, the solution being used in this work, we uh, got fouling from the beginning at a very low rate. And then later on, it went fouling rate. Well, if I compare here, if I say that's maybe 0.2, uh, just under 10, the fouling rate. If, if I go up threefold, I've gone up tenfold in the fouling rate. It really seems to take off at a certain point. Perhaps slightly ill-defined. That's why there's a big oval there. But um, that is what we got in the lab. And here is some data which uh, Graeme Pierce, who's going to be speaking next, um, shared with me about five years ago. And this is from industry. It's from real pilot plants. And I want just to take you through this. So this is about a, a month here. So, so the aim would be to run the plant for a month without cleaning. There, there are certain things happening with a bit of back flush and there's some clever things trying to maintain um, the rate of increase of pressure. Okay, this is permeability loss. I didn't turn the data around. Probably I should, given my earlier slide. This is permeability loss. So as you lose permeability, you have to increase the pressure. So when you go from 350 down to half of that, you've doubled the pressure. So using more pumping costs. But at 54, you manage to go the whole month. Now, 61 is not much more than 54, but you seem to have crossed a threshold. So, so we're not at critical flux anymore because we haven't got that ideal condition of zero fouling. But we do seem to have a threshold where we go from low fouling to high fouling. And if you go up to 78, you, it doesn't... The, the rate of permeability loss really, um, the rate of loss really increases. So, a simple model for this process is to say that there's a, a value A and you lose this permeability irrespective of, of, of the flux you're at. Um, and then beyond a certain point, this second term becomes important. So 
um, if you're less than the threshold, you've only got A. And that fitted the data well, and it's data you've just seen, plus three other sets of data. Um, now, you might ask, do you want to operate at the threshold? Do you want to back away from the threshold? Or can you go a little bit beyond the threshold? I said beyond the threshold, it went up quickly. Well, for the laboratory data, it did. And certainly, if you have a high value of B, you don't want to go beyond the threshold. But if it only goes up gently beyond B, and um, it, for groundwater, the water's been very well filtered by the ground, the value of A is low, the value of B is low, and if the aim is to get to the end of one month, you can afford actually to be, go beyond the threshold. So you don't want to identify the threshold as within any way as being the sustainable flux, a concept I say a bit more about in a moment. You don't want to do that. Um, but if you were uh, um, got some surface water, um, no, 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 and if you've got some raw water, raw surface water, not the clarified one, then you wouldn't want to go beyond the threshold. So if I go along this line first, um, we're saying that at the pilot plant scale, maybe you could get away with 100 because that'd be at the threshold. But if you were designing it for someone, also allowing for variability from month to month, allowing for some upsets, allowing for the fact that operator intervention won't be as good as you might do as the runner of the pilot plant, you want to back off 15%. So you would recommend operation at this value. Similar for wastewater. That fouls heavily. You would wish to back off uh, from 59 back to 50. For the top one, you might say on the basis of your pilot plant data that you, could, you think you could get away with 168 all the time, but still back off a little bit but your backing off point leaves you still above the threshold value. So the concepts of critical flux and of threshold flux, I think, initially come out of laboratory work. I think they're useful as guides, but they don't necessarily have any design information in them. You know, if a th you know, is there a critical flux? You know, is there a threshold flux? Um, so I'm assuming here probably there's no critical flux. That would be great if there was. But have we identified a characteristic curve for the combination of membrane operating conditions and feed water? Let's stay with water. If we have, we might know what the threshold flux is. But where do we operate? Well, that's going to be influenced by cost of energy, membrane costs, the cleaning regime and its costs. And I've put down financial policy as well. It, you, 
do you discount the plant over 10 years or a longer period? You know, what, what's, what's the financial policy? And then you could determine uh, an economic flux, which for the industry would be the sustainable one. It has to give steady performance, but maybe there's a range of fluxes which would give steady performance, and you've got to choose one, and you're going to choose it on economic grounds. So, I think sustainable fluxes what you might, are not uniquely determined by physical matters. They're influenced by them, but economic matters, and we have an alternative in the moment with greenhouse gases, but economic matters, let's stick with an economic driver here, also have an influence. The sustainable flux, I think, is the net flux. I've put in net to keep some membrane people happy because there's going to be a bit of back flush occasionally, so you lose a bit of water and then you get it again. So anyway, it's the net flux. It's the net flux that can be maintained by mechanical and cleaning enhancing means to meet an operational cost objective over the project lifetime. Whereas I think the threshold flux is that flux which separates low fouling from high fouling. It's the kink in the curve. Now you might say I'm not really addressing sustainable and you might say I should add in greenhouse gas potential and yes that could be factored in. We could look at what's the embodied CO2 in the membranes we buy, what's the CO2 associated with the energy in the chemicals and use that together with um, the flux the, the characteristic curve of fouling against um, flux uh, to determine sustainable flux. So, um, sorry, we'll just go. We forget that slide. There was one there which shouldn't have been there. And thanks very much for your attention. <laughs>